Have you ever wondered if your prayers really matter? Are there times that you have prayed and you feel as if if you hadn't prayed, it's no big deal because when you pray, it appears nothing happens. Do you wonder if your prayers ever reach the throne of grace? And I'm sure all of us who are in Christ, all of us who are Christians, if we're honest, we would have to admit that yes, there are times when that is exactly how we feel about our prayer lives. But we need to rid ourselves of these kinds of thoughts for a couple of reasons. First, these kinds of thoughts are purely negative in nature. They are simply not true. If you are truly one of God's children, if you have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, every one of your prayers reaches the throne of grace. Second, if we continue to have these kinds of thoughts... It won't be very long before we are tempted to give up on prayer. I mean, after all, if we think that no one's listening, why keep talking? Or you may not give up on prayer. You may continue to pray, but there will be little confidence and even less passion in your prayer life. Well, our text this morning is going to help us understand that as God's children, our prayers do matter. And that our prayers, every one of our prayers, do reach the throne of grace. Well, we need to do a little bit of review because uh, when we reached the end of Revelation chapter 7, uh, we took the break to go ahead back to our, our uh, series on Psalm 119 and finish that up. And so now we have brought that to a conclusion. So we go back to our study of Revelation. So I think just to bring us all up to speed and to remind ourselves of where we're at in the book, it would be wise to take some time to review what we've learned thus far. And let me begin by reminding each one of us of the guiding principle in our study of Revelation. The guiding principle is this. The things that John has written in the book were written to real churches made up of real Christians living in real time. Therefore, whatever he wrote, regardless of how fantastic or how strange it may seem to our ears, his words had to have some application to his original readers. In other words, the letter that he wrote to them was given to them for their understanding of what was happening in the first century as well as for God's plan for the ages. And the book, as we learned, is apocalyptic in nature, which means that the numbers and symbols employed in the book are representative of truth. So it is our responsibility, it is our job, if you will, as students of Scripture to seek to understand the truth behind the symbols. 
Now, part of the reason that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write this book to the seven churches was to give them comfort. He was to bring comfort to them in light of the persecution they were currently enduring as well as the persecution that would take place in the coming days. So John writes to them to let them know that Jesus has not forgotten them. John writes to them to let them know that God has not abandoned them. John writes to them to help them make sense of what otherwise would appear to be nonsensical. John writes to them to reassure them that God is on his throne and that he is currently ruling and reigning and overseeing and orchestrating the events of history. John writes to them to help them understand that God's eternal plan for the ages was working out exactly as God had decreed in eternity past. Now, if we take a moment and think through all of those reasons that John wrote to them, it becomes apparent to us that writing to them If those things were true for them, those things are true for us today in this century. When we we read the book of Revelation, we find comfort just as they found comfort. As we read the book of Revelation, we understand that as the people of God, we will be persecuted. As we read the book of Revelation, we are assured that Jesus has not forgotten us and God the Father has not abandoned his people. As we read the book, we discover that God is still on his throne, that he is right now ruling and reigning over the affairs of mankind, and that he is orchestrating the events of history for his own glory and the good of his own people. And we discover that there is a glorious future awaiting us as God's people. So that is brings us up to Revelation Uh, chapter 8 and uh, I want you to notice something here chapter 8 begins with the opening of God's of the excuse me of the seventh seal the seventh seal now if you remember the first six of the seven seals were opened in Revelation chapter 6 And what happened when each one of these seals were opened? Well, as each seal was opened, God unleashed judgment on sinful mankind. The first four seals that he opened had to do with the four horses and their riders. There was the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and then the pale horse or the sickly green horse. And each one of these horses, along with their riders, were given permission to unleash judgment on the earth. Now, when the fifth seal was opened... John saw something both dramatic and traumatic. Turn back to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. We're going to reference these verses a couple times this morning, so let's get them in front of us. John writes here, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
So the martyrs or the souls under the altar ask a very important question. They ask God, how long will it be before you avenge and judge those who have killed us? Basically, that's what they want to know. How long will it be before you judge those who killed us, who took our lives for no other reason other than the fact that we were your disciples? How long, God, will it be before you execute judgment on them? Now, I highlight this because I want you to keep their words in mind as we work our way through the text. So when the sixth seal is opened, all kinds of supernatural disasters took place. There was great earthquakes. The sun becomes black. The moon looks like blood. The sky rolls up like a scroll. And the kings, as well as all the small and the great people on earth, cried out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. And why did they cry out for this? Because... Uh, they tell us in Revelation 6, 17, for the great day of their wrath, who is their wrath? It's the wrath of the lamb. It's the wrath of the one who sits on the throne has come and who can stand. So then chapter seven opens with four mighty angels holding back the four winds of the earth until the 144,000 are sealed. And who are the 144,000? Well, we discovered that they are symbolic of the totality of all of God's redeemed people throughout of redemptive history. Next, in chapter 7, John sees this innumerable multitude in heaven, and they are before the throne, and they are before the Lamb. And what are they doing? Well, they are worshiping the one who sits on the throne, and they are worshiping the Lamb who was slain. Now, in verse 10 of chapter 7, John describes their worship by saying that they were crying out with a loud voice. So John describes this incredible scene in heaven where all of the redeemed of God are crying out loudly in such an expression of praise and thanksgiving. It was the worship service to end all worship services, if you will. Whatever's going on up there at Asbury holds no candle to what's going to take place in heaven. Amen. This is an incredible scene. It's a loud scene. I can only imagine if, you, if you've ever been to a concert, you, you go to some concerts and they, they make your ears bleed, you know, and it's really not enjoyable. But in heaven, your ears aren't going to bleed and it's going to be enjoyable, amen? It's going to be so loud. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. So that brings us to chapter 8, verse 1. And notice the, the stark contrast here. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Keep in mind, what did John just describe in chapter 7? There was this tremendous worship service going on. But when the lamb steps forward and opens the seventh seal, there is utter silence in heaven. Why is this? Well, if we go back to the Old Testament, we begin to get a little insight into how or why this silence is used in Scripture. For instance, in Habakkuk, he wrote this, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. 
Then in Zechariah, he, the prophet here goes a little further. He says, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he, referring to the Lord, has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So why is the entire earth to be silent before the Lord? Because the Lord has roused himself. Now the roused the word roused here is used in the context that God is preparing to do something. And so when the seventh seal is opened, though we are not told exactly what the contents of the seventh seal are, whatever it is, it is so dramatic, if you will, it is so incredible that all of heaven goes silent. And we see from what happens in the rest of our text this morning that God is indeed preparing to do something. I personally believe that when the seventh seal was opened, the magnitude of the judgment to come was revealed, and those who saw the magnitude of that judgment went silent. So is there any significance to say there was silence in heaven for half an hour? I don't believe so. Again, remember numbers are used symbolically in the book of Revelation. I think it's just referring to some period of time in which heaven goes silent. So we have to ask ourselves, if this concept of silence is used here in Revelation chapter 8, and we see elsewhere in Scripture where silence is connected with God preparing to do something, we have to ask ourselves, then what is it that God is preparing to do here in Revelation chapter 8? Now, the easy answer would be to immediately jump to the seven trumpets and say, well, it has to do with the blowing of the seven trumpet judgments. But I don't think that's what it's talking about here at all. I think what John is describing here is God is preparing to answer the prayers of his people. And he's going to do this in a very dramatic way. But before we get to those details, let's notice some of the other things here. After the time of silence, John said that he saw seven angels. Now, these aren't seven ordinary angels, if you will. He calls them the seven angels that stand before God. Most commentators believe that these are archangels. Archangels are considered to be the highest rank among the angels. Two archangels are identified in Scripture as Gabriel and Michael. There are lots of commentators who resort to some uh, Jewish uh, writings to try and name the other five. I see no value in doing that because uh, God didn't decide to give us their name. So we're content with understanding that these are seven archangels. But if we think about Gabriel, Gabriel was the one who delivered the good news about the coming Savior, correct? So we can infer from that that an archangel 
was used in Scripture by God to deliver special messages and kind of to act as one of God's envoys, if you will. So in John's vision, the seven angels are given seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets will be used to unleash God's judgment on the earth. Now, uh, let me uh, remind all of us once again that there are three sets of judgments in the book of Revelation, but, but we, we don't want to think of them as happening in a chronological fashion. We want to see, we want to understand them in terms of a recapitulation and an and a intensification of the judgments. So the three judgments began with what? The opening of the seven seals. Now we, we move on to the seven trumpets, and then later in the book we will move on to the seven bowls. And what we will see as we examine these judgments we see that they increase in intensity, okay? Because if you remember back, when we looked at the six seals, we saw the end of the world. So if the end of the world happened with the six seals, then what would be the point of these other two judgments? Well, the point of these other two judgments is God is, is trying to warn the world that, hey, more judgment is coming and it's much more severe um, when it does come, it will be much more severe, okay? But before the first trumpet is blown, another angel arrives on the scene. Now, who is this angel? Now, he's not identified, and so uh, you kind of uh, set yourself up for failure, I guess, if you try and identify the angel. But I, I do believe that there is good reason to try and identify this angel, Say, well, who might this angel be? Well, because he is directly involved in the offering of the incense mixed with the prayers of the saints, I believe this angel could very well be the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why do you say that? Well, remember what Paul said about Jesus in Romans chapter 8. He said, who is, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is, what's Paul say? Interceding for us. And that is what this angel is doing here in Revelation chapter 8. So because of what is about to be offered on the golden, the golden altar, which are the prayers of the saints, the prayers of all of those who have been redeemed by Christ, I find it hard to understand why this would be carried out by another angel and not Jesus Christ himself because this is what Jesus Christ himself has been already been doing on behalf of his people. I could be wrong, and if you want to say I don't think that's who it is, that's fine. We'll remain friends. But I, I do believe that, I, that it is Jesus Christ here. Well, just as the seven angels were given their trumpets, this angel, he's also given something. He's given a golden censer. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament, we, we discover that a golden censer was used in the tabernacle for the worship of God. Uh, the priest would fill the censer with burning coals from the altar. And to these burning coals, guess what he would add? He would add incense to them. And the purpose of the incense 
was to produce a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So what we have here in Revelation chapter 8 is a picture taken right out from the Old Testament. Not only is the angel given the golden censer, he's given much incense. Now think about this. Much, if incense is used to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and this angel is given much incense, and he's going to add it to the prayers of the saints, what is the picture here? This is something that's going to be extremely pleasing to the Lord. This is not just any ordinary acceptance of prayer. This is an extremely pleasing acceptance of prayer. He's given much incense, and he adds that to the prayers of the saints. And we, we don't have to look far in Scripture to see that incense is associated with prayer. For instance, Psalm 141.2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. The question now is, what prayers, or what are the prayers that John is describing here? What are the prayers that John is describing here? Well, to answer that question, we need to go back to that text in Revelation chapter 6 that I said we'd reference once again. So look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. They are praying. They're not just talking. They are praying. They're praying to God. Now notice, O sovereign Lord, this is directed to God. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're praying to God. They want to know, how much longer, Lord? How much longer do we have to wait until you avenge our blood? How much longer do we have to wait before you bring judgment on those who took our lives. We all ask those kinds of questions in prayer, don't we? How much longer, God, do I have to put up with this? I think of Paul. How much longer, God, do I have to deal with this thorn in the flesh? And you've got your own thorn in the flesh. How much longer? You pray to God repeatedly. How much longer? How much longer? How much longer? How much longer? And that can become wearying and tiring. And, and discouragement can set in. But this text here, as I hope to show you as we finish, this text is a tremendous encouragement to never quit praying. Because God is going to answer in his own way and in his own time. See, we need to understand something, that when we pray and the answer doesn't come right away, that God is much wiser than we are. That God knows exactly what is best for us. God knows exactly what he is doing. God never makes a mistake. And just because God doesn't answer in our time doesn't mean that he's not going to answer. I hope that you read a good biography every once in a while. And I hope that you read 
some good biographies of missionaries every once in a while. As I've told you a few weeks ago, I'm working my way through the autobiography of John Patton. So you must be a slow reader. Well, that's beside the point, but I only read, I only read a couple chapters each morning as part of my morning routine. But here's a man who labored for years, years. And someday I hope to tell you, I hope to tell you the story of what the breakthrough was that he saw scores of these natives come to Christ. I wonder, do we have that kind of perseverance in prayer? Can we stick with it more than six months, more than a year? What if God takes 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? I think it was George Mueller who prayed for a particular man throughout his entire life. George Mueller passed away, never seen this man come to faith in Christ. But the man did come to faith in Christ after George Mueller had passed away. But he never gave up praying. And one of the lessons here from this text is we should never give up praying. We must persevere in prayer. Now notice in verse 5, we have a dramatic description of answered prayer. I heard a pastor say this week that, uh, and he didn't mean this in a, uh, he didn't mean this in a, a derogatory way at all. But he said God was a very dramatic person. Now, normally, if we say that about somebody, we don't normally mean it in the highest terms, amen? You know what I mean? We say, oh, they're a, they're a drama queen. No, that's not, that's not what he's saying here. But think about what God has done through history, and God does it in very dramatic ways. And think about how he records these, his workings in the scriptures. You know, I, I love the stories of the Old Testament. And one of the stories that I absolutely love is when God leads his people out of Egypt and he brings them right to the brink of the sea and Pharaoh's closing in from behind. God goes into all of this detail of exactly how he delivered his people and he delivered them in a very dramatic fashion, didn't he? And when Moses wrote of that account, he didn't just say, well, we came to the, the shore of the sea and the God delivered us and judged the Egyptians. Is that what he says? No, he describes God sending the wind and creating this chasm in the sea and the, the mud becomes dry and God's people cross over on dry land and Pharaoh and his army, they rush into the breach as it were and God removes this restraining power and all the Egyptians are drowned. It's a very dramatic story. You think of Daniel in the lion's den. The story recorded there is that, well, they opened up the pit, they threw the old boy down, and in the morning they pulled him back up, God saved him. No, that's not how it worked. I love it when they, they throw Daniel down in the lion's den, and we read that God shut the mouths of the lions, and my favorite part of the story is, you know, the king, he didn't want to do this, and he's up all night, he's thrashing and tossing and turning on his bed first light he runs to the lion's den he says get that stone off the, the 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 mouth of that thing and he hollers down Daniel did you make it and Daniel says oh king live forever it's dramatic isn't it 
And what we have here in Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, is God's dramatic demonstration of answered prayer. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now what is happening here? It goes back to my opening questions. What we have here is the answer to whether or not God hears our prayers. It goes back to whether or not our prayers matter to God. What we have here is a most emphatic answer that our prayers do indeed matter. And why does the angel take the golden censer, fill it with fire, and then throw it down upon the earth? Because... Revelation chapter 6, the saints under the altar cried out, O sovereign Lord, how long? And here's the answer. This is how long. I will avenge you. I am avenging you. I am sending judgment to those who dwell on the earth. See, the silence again in verse 1 was an was in anticipation of what God was preparing to do, what is so dramatically described here in verse 5. Mark this, the action of God is tied to the prayers of his people. Don't miss that connection. And don't let your mind go wandering off and saying, well, he may have done this without this. Or he may have, what does the text say? He did this in response to the prayers of his people. They said, how long, O oh Lord? He said, just hang on. I'm going to act, but I'm going to act in my own time, in my own way. God's people prayed. Jesus made our prayers acceptable to God by mixing it with the incense that makes them acceptable to God. And as a result, God says, here you go. Here's my response. The time has come for me to avenge your blood. And he does it in a most dramatic way. Now, when the angel threw the fire on the earth, John says that there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. At first glance, we read that and we say, oh, that's, that's part of the judgment. In a sense, yes, but it's much more than that. And perhaps as we read this, it sounded a little bit familiar to you, and it should, when God met, met with Moses on Mount Sinai, let me read you what happened. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, we read this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. 
Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. So what we have here, both in Exodus 19 and in Revelation chapter 8, is what is known as a divine storm. It's a theophany. Say, what does that mean? It's a $2 word that simply means a manifestation of God's presence. So, when the fire is thrown down on the earth, there will be no doubt as to who is behind the judgments and why they are taking place. There will be no talking heads spinning this away. The world will recoil in horror as the realization that God's wrath has been unleashed on the earth. So, do your prayers matter to God? Yes. Every prayer matters to God. Your prayers reach the throne of grace. Let me read you two quotes from Spurgeon. He said, what does the angel do with the prayers of all saints? Does he put one of them here and another there? Does he put one on the altar and another under the altar? No. <laughs> he puts them all into the golden censer. Here comes a prayer full of faith from a warm and loving heart filled with ardent desires for God's glory. And behind it comes another, a poor, starving prayer. It's sincere, but it comes from the lips of Mr. Little Faith. There's not much fervor about it, but it is as much as that feeble brother could pray. He went on to say, there are some prayers that are so little and so feeble that you would think that they never could get to God at all. Now listen to what he says here. But it is with them as it was with some of the creatures in Noah's ark. And I absolutely love this. He says, I never can comprehend, and I've never thought about this, I never can comprehend how the snails managed to get into the ark, yet they did. They must have started very early. There are some people's prayers which seem to travel almost as slowly as those snails did, yet they do get to heaven, and they are presented by Christ with all the rest of the saints' prayers before his Father's throne. If you take a single drop of water from the sea and analyze it, you will find that the same elements are in it that are in the whole ocean. So if I can breathe but one sincere desire towards heaven, if my prayer is merely the upward glancing of an eye when none but God is near, all the elements of prevailing prayer are in that one desire or that one childlike glance. And then he says, a diamond is a diamond, be it ever so small. A prayer is a prayer regardless of who it comes from. As long as it's from God's child, it reaches the ear of God. So I, I thought to myself, you know, I can identify that. I, I feel like the snail. I feel like my prayers just don't get there on time. 
But be encouraged by the snail. It may have taken him and the missus quite a while to board the boat, but they made it. Be encouraged. God hears your prayer. God responds to your prayers. He hears the prayer of the smallest one of his redeemed as well as he hears the prayers of his most eminent saint. And I don't know about you, and it's probably what you weren't expecting to when we got back into Revelation chapter 8, but I find this passage a tremendous encouragement to pray. To pray. I'm encouraged to know that the Holy Spirit helps me as I pray. I'm encouraged to know that Jesus takes my prayers as poor and as feeble as they are, and he makes them acceptable to God. He mixes them with the sweetest incense, and they uh, uh, arrive uh, to God as a sweet and pleasing aroma. Think about this. I'm encouraged to know that all my prayers play a part in the eternal plans and purposes of God. Have you thought about your prayers that way? Prayer is not wasted time. Prayer is taking part in God's plan for history. Your prayers are not insignificant they're not do you realize that God decreed that you would pray do you realize that God decreed that his decrees would be fulfilled through the prayers that his people pray your prayers are not insignificant they're absolutely critical Your prayers do matter, and because our prayers do matter, shouldn't we put more effort into them? Now, I'm not here to make anybody feel bad about their prayer life because nobody feels worse about their prayer life than I do. So I determined that this year, most or the majority of my reading was going to be about prayer. So I've been reading a book by Isaac Watts, I think he wrote some hymns. Is that the same guy? I think it is. And he wrote this absolutely marvelous book. It's called A Guide to Prayer. It's probably one of the most practical books on prayer I've ever read in my life. And something that he said early on in that book just really clicked with me. And I immediately stopped and put it into practice. The premise of his book is this. He believes that prayer is a gift that can be developed and improved upon. And he suggested as a means of improving and developing the gift of prayer that one way to do this is to take the time, he uses the term premeditate on what we're going to pray about. In other words, don't just rush into prayer. Take some time to think about what you need to pray about. Now, there's several benefits to this. One, it will help show us how unbalanced our prayer lives are. I dare say we've got more me prayers in there than 
we probably should. It's not wrong to pray for ourselves. Get me wrong. We just came through Psalm 119. He's repeatedly asking God to teach him, guide him, direct him, help him. But if we're not careful, that's all that our prayers turn into. And we never go beyond that. And we never think of the larger picture of what God is doing. So if we would take the time and think about what we need. Now, I notice I'm using the word need to pray about, not want to pray about. Let's start with what we need to pray about, and the wants will come later. We take the time to think about what we need to pray about. We just write that down. And I've been trying to do this consistently. You know how much time I take? When I work, I use something called the Pomodoro Technique. You may be familiar, you may not be. I have a timer, it goes for 25 minutes, and I have a five-minute break. 25-5, 25-5, Well, in one of those five-minute breaks, you know what I do as I'm preparing to pray? I write these things down. I take the five minutes. That's all I do. I don't take all morning. I'm like you. I, I got things to do. I can't take all morning. But I can take five minutes. You know what? I can fill up a pretty good sheet of paper in five minutes with things I need to pray about. And so then when it comes time for me to pray, I have things that I really pray about. Now, perhaps your experience is like mine sometimes. Let's say you don't really plan to pray. And Listen, now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with spontaneous prayers. I'm not saying that at all. There's a time and a place for that. Nor am I saying that you should never pray in a formal way. I've told you guys before, I use a prayer book. Okay. But we don't want to get out of balance with either one of those things. So this helps us here because many times when we pray, see if this has been your experience. You pray for about two minutes and you feel really good about yourself. You're, you're on a roll and it, you, you, the, the, it ticks over to two minutes and one second and you're like, uh, uh, now what? Well, this avoids that. Now, when we fall into that trap, if we can't find a way out of it, probably be tempted just to give up on prayer or we'll resort to the old uh, tired phrases and words and expressions that we've used thousands and thousands of time that we don't have to put any heart or any thought into them at all. So we don't end up having a very satisfying or a very effective prayer life. But I would challenge you for at least a week before you pray, take two to five minutes and write down the things that you need to pray about. And yes, it's okay to include some things about your own needs. I pray for my own heart, not physically. Perhaps I should, but I don't. But, you know, spiritually, I'm more concerned about the spiritual condition of my heart than I am the physical condition of my heart. So those are things that, yes, those are personal things. But let me challenge you to do that. I, I think that you would be surprised how much your prayer life will improve in both quality and quantity. So, yes, your prayers do matter. Yes, your prayers do reach the ear of God. Yes, your prayers play an important role 
in the outworking of God's plan and purposes. Your prayers matter to yourself. Your prayers matter to others. And most importantly, they matter to God. It's worth the time and the effort to put into it. Well, let's pray. Father, I want to publicly thank you for what you have been showing me in recent months about prayer. Lord, I, I doubt that there's anybody in the room that is satisfied with their prayer life. Lord, and I think if we would say that, yeah, I'm okay with how I pray, we're on dangerous, dangerous ground. So I pray that uh, through your spirit and through what we've learned here this morning that we would be perhaps re-energized in our prayer lives and perhaps we've seen prayer in a little different way and that we are encouraged to pray because we know that you will respond to our prayers. And Father, I know how easy it is for us to see ourselves as just an individual Christian living in Berea, Kentucky, and think, well, what I do doesn't really matter. Well, according to this text, it does. Our prayers matter in the grand, your grand plan. So, Father, ignite a fire in us individually and as a church for prayer. Increase the number at our prayer meeting. Lord, the church is only as strong as its prayer life. Help us to be a praying church. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'll leave you.